Good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, what I thought we would do in uh, this morning is kind of do a refresher on uh, the gospel and gospel centrality, and that's going to kind of set the tone or the foundation for our focus more on leadership uh, principles and the substance of gospel-driven leadership in the post-launch um, stretch that we have together. It's always good to just kind of reset, kind of reboot a little bit. Uh, I don't imagine that anything in this morning session would be um, new to you. I, I, I assume that it's a refresher, but it's always good to kind of uh, take another look at what it means to be gospel-centered. I think we're, we're in sort of a dangerous phase of um, kind of, I guess, a part of the evangelical subculture where the idea of gospel-centered is becoming a little fuzzy, a little hazy. It's, it's more of a tribal identifier. It's more of a marketing term. Um, it's, it's more of a way of defining in-groups and out-groups uh, than it is a, a matter of substance. And so one of the things that I work with um, our, our uh, pastoral ministry students at Midwestern Seminary and um, at Liberty Baptist Church, I direct a residency program for young men training for pastoral ministry. Um, and we just go hard over and over and over again, kind of rehashing gospel centrality, because I want them to be able to walk out um, not just knowing the buzzwords and the jargon, but actually being able to define what it means to be gospel-centered. Um, the first thing we see in 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, um, Paul very helpfully um, reminds us of what the gospel is, because we're also in an age of gospel confusion, and this seems to come up in every age of the church, actually, um, especially now, if we were to contextualize it, we hear things like, that's a gospel issue, or that's a, a gospel subject. And depending on what is meant, right, if, if all they mean is this is an implication of the good news, or it's somehow connected or empowered by the good news, it's probably a true statement. But very often what you have is someone trying to um, conflate an entailment of the gospel with, the, with gospel content. Or, or, or with the good news itself. And here we have a very clear articulation of what the good news is. I would remind you, brothers, <clears throat> of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We'll stop right there, but you can see kind of the, the nutshell, if you will, of the good news. You see uh, the irreducible complexity, the, the bare minimum. You could say a lot more about the good news, perhaps. You could talk about the facets of the atonement and all sorts of things like that. Um, you could bring in subjects like our adoption by the Father, our reconciliation to God. You could talk about imputation and the depths of justification and all of those sorts of things. But here, Paul is, is, is saying to us, um, anything less than this is, is not gospel. You have Christ died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day. Um, he goes on in the chapter to talk about, of course, the ascension and the witnesses to it and that sort of thing. But this is the bare minimum. The good news is Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And what we notice about this is, is exactly what the term means, gospel. It is good news. It's a, it's a newspaper headline. It's not advice, right? It's not um, instructions. It's not 
it's not it's certainly not law it's actually uh, uh, an announcement it's glad tidings of great joy it's something that god did in history and yet we also see something that's staggering something that um if you're like me you know i grew up in in the church that had this gospel truthfully had the gospel and yet the gospel was somewhat um, restrained or constrained to one segment of, of humanity. Um, I grew up in a church where the gospel was for lost people. And after that, you, you, you graduated you know, from it. You, you moved on. You, you had a different need, perhaps. And if we read this too quickly, we glance over <clears throat> what, um, how Paul explains... Um, as he elaborates elsewhere, how he explains here the expansiveness, the versatility, which is kind of what we're going to stretch out a little bit um, this morning. So you just see in the phrases there, um, in, in verses 1 and 2, um, you received the gospel, right? So there's a past tense experience of it. Um, you walked an aisle, you raised your hand to pray along with a prayer, uh, someone shared the message with you, a friend or a roommate or a family member, a parent or a Sunday school teacher. Somebody explained the gospel message to you and you received it. You prayed and asked Jesus into your heart. You made some kind of affirmation of faith. You received it. That's where a lot of us sort of stop in terms of our gospel apprehension. But then Paul says, you didn't just receive it past tense. You're standing in it or you're standing upon it, some translations say, um, present tense. So there's a present tense sense of the gospel's dominion in your life. And then he gets even more expansive to say, you are being saved by it. Present, future tense. So you have a, a bigger, more panoramic um, view of what this good news is. I, I think it's Tim Keller who says the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. So we see that the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is much bigger than just the announcement for our conversion experience. That it's actually the announcement by which um, we find favor before God every waking moment of every day. And it's the announcement by which we'll find favor before God at the last day, at the last moment, when we stand before our Heavenly Father. What do we bring to present to Him to uh, to verify our entrance into paradise, to verify our being swallowed up in God forever in, in the afterlife. Um, we don't bring our merit badges. We don't bring our religious good works. We don't bring our trophies. We bring the gospel, our clinging to what Christ has done. So to be gospel-centered speaks to the idea that all of life, and of course, because of all of life, all of ministry, ought to be oriented around the finished work of Christ. But as I said, this has become somewhat of a, of a buzzword, and there are some major implications for it that we really need to tease out and think through, kind of rehearse before us over and over and over again. Um, several years ago, many years ago, I suppose, um, time moves by so quick. We were just talking a bit about that. Uh, time is going by really fast. Um, Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. Well, he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, which was a millions and millions bestseller. Uh, but he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. And it was the, actually the very first book that um, I read with my first kind of ministry mentor uh, when I was training 
uh, for ministry. I didn't go to seminary, um, which is, was a shock when, the semi, you know, when I was asked to, uh, to work at a seminary. Uh, one of the first things I said to them was like, I don't, I've never been to a seminary. Uh, and I said, that's all right. We don't want you to teach. And then I said, oh, okay. You don't want me to teach. And then I showed up and a few years in, they were like, have you thought about teaching? And I thought, okay, well, I guess I should go to seminary now that I'm at a seminary. Um, so I didn't have a seminary. Um, I was trained for ministry in kind of the seeker church sort of paradigm. Uh, that, that's what we used to call it back then. Uh, now it's kind of, there's 31 flavors of this thing. It's, it's more like the attractional church is kind of because there's different you know, varieties of it. But we used to call seeker-sensitive church or seeker-targeted church. And um, my first mentor, we were in kind of a Willow Creek kind of model uh, church plant. And the first book he took me through was The Purpose-Driven Church. And um, some of the principles in that are very sound, the very idea that your church should be oriented around a, a single-minded vision. A, a, you identify your purpose, and everything in your church should be galvanized according to that purpose, and everything you do should flow from that purpose. I actually think that's a pretty sound principle. Where it breaks down is the idea that, that all purposes are created equal, that every church just sort of defines what their purpose is. We get from the New Testament actually what the purpose is, to go out into the world and to make disciples of all people, to teach them everything that Christ has commanded them. How does that come about? Well, so multiple years later, um, as I was kind of working through some of these ideas, I started a, a blog. Maybe some of y'all remember those things. They're not real. They're still around, but they're not real. But there was a day when it was like, that was a deal. And even if somebody introduced you to speak, they'd be like, he's a blogger. And everyone would go, oh, he blogs, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> that's kind of a thing. Um, I started a blog, and I called it the Gospel Driven Church. And I actually got an email from Rick Warren, by the way. Uh, this is before I had, like, books out or anything. Um, I was making a splash in the blog world, and Rick Warren sent me an email, and uh, it, was, uh, it was right after Christmas. He was, he, was, he was wishing me a happy new year, and he said, like the title of the blog. I felt like it was kind of a flex, like he was telling me, like, I, I see what you're doing kind of thing, uh, which is nice. And I've had better exchanges with him since then. But um, <laughs> the, the idea for me was to say, okay, all this stuff that I learned um, in my early days of ministry, how the church should be oriented around a single purpose and everything should derive from that purpose – Yes, I want to take that, but what I want to say is our purpose, our, our, our galvanizing principle needs to be the finished work of Christ. Um, everything we do needs to be oriented around that. And I think we see that not just here in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, but um, as I hope that we'll see in the rest of this morning's session um, in the wider New Testament as well, helping us to even see that the entire scriptures are actually oriented around this good news. So some of the implications that we see are these. Um, the gospel is, is bigger than simply the proposition for conversion. So you received it, past tense, yes, that's great. And Paul could have just said that. I, I want to remind you of this gospel that you received, right, unless you believed in vain. He could have just kept going uh, from there and left off the stuff about standing in it and being saved by it. But because he includes those phrases, we see that the gospel is bigger than just the proposition for conversion. It is that, praise God, but it's bigger than that. The gospel is power beyond the power of our justification, in fact. So we begin to see here, and we'll see in other places as well, that the gospel is not just the power of our justification, it's the power of our sanctification as well. Um, we see how the gospel informs issues of, of identity and validation and qualification and Christian growth. And that, therefore, um, the gospel in ministry must be extended beyond the invitation to the lost. That yes, the gospel is for lost people, but it's also for Christians. Um, and in that way, the gospel becomes sort of like a skeleton key, 
uh, for human existence. It is the means by which lost people become found, the means by which people dead in their sins become alive in Christ, but it's also the means by which people who are alive, people who are found, become more like Christ, become stronger in their faith, grow in Christian vitality. So I want to give you, um, in the time we have left here this morning, uh, four broad categories that the gospel speaks to, four broad categories that you'll encounter um, in ministry. Um, certainly in your Christian life as well, but more specifically um, as you do ministry. And then at the end, I'll, I'll kind of put a bow on it with kind of three summary principles. The, the three, I'm going to give you a lot of lists today. I hope that's okay. It's kind of counter to what I normally do, but um, I'm not a big list guy. Um, I'm, I, I'm a three-point sermon guy. I don't know if any of you guys who preach, like, I hate it when there's points within points. Uh, that drives me nuts. Wheels within wheels and, you know. It's like, which set am I supposed to remember? That's the thing. But anyway, uh, I'm going to break my cardinal rule and give you lots of lists today. I hope that's okay. So four broad categories and then three summary principles at the end. And those principles are really like, that's the thing. I do this with my students probably every other week uh, with our ministry residents as well. Um, because the principles are, are the things that if someone were to ask them, what, is, what does this gospel-centered thing mean? Like, what is... What do you mean be gospel-centered? I want them to be able to articulate those three things. So I'm going to save that for the end so it's the last kind of thing on your head. So four broad categories the gospel speaks to in life and ministry. The first one is this. It's the Bible. How does the gospel relate to the Bible? And really this is just doing the work of biblical theology. Um, Now if you're like me, didn't go to seminary, you hear the phrase biblical theology. Uh, When I first heard it, I was like, what other theology is there? Shouldn't all theology be biblical, right? We're all pulling from the Bible. Well, we're talking about the formal category of biblical theology, which is distinguished from the other formal categories like systematic theology and historical theology, that sort of thing. Um, If you're not familiar with those terms, systematic theology is more of a topical kind of approach. Um, It's essentially saying, what does the whole Bible say about this subject? What does the whole Bible say about God? What does the whole Bible say about Christ? What does the whole Bible say about the church? That sort of thing. And so if you have a big book, you know, if you have a book of systematic theology, it usually works through those major categories, usually in a, you know, systematic way, begins usually with either uh, epistemology, how we know things, or maybe the doctrine of revelation, um, or often just the doctrine of God, so the, the Trinitarian stuff will be in the beginning, and it'll work through doctrine of God to then anthropology, sort of the, you know, subject of man, then soteriology, working through salvation, how man is reconciled to God, and then it'll get into things like ecclesiology, the doctrines of the church, and then it usually ends as it does with end things, eschatology, the end times, that sort of deal. So systematic, what does the whole Bible say about these particular subjects? Historical theology is exactly as it sounds. You know, what, did, um, what was the th- uh, theology of this particular person or this particular period or movement in church history? What's the theology of the reformers? What's the theology of the church fathers? What's the theology of the Puritans? That sort of thing. Um, or the theology of Martin Luther or the theology of um, St. John Chrysostom. That sort of thing. Historical theology. And then biblical theology is basically beginning with the book itself to say, what does the Bible say? And sometimes individual books. What's the theology of Nehemiah? What's the theology of Job? What's the theology of the Gospels? But big works of biblical theology are essentially trying to find a through line. How does the entire book of the Bible um, uh, cohere? What's the cohesive, consistent storyline, in other words? What's the major theme of the Bible? And um, this kind of begins the search. This is sort of a perennial search to find the center of the scriptures. 
or the, the central story of the scriptures. And different biblical theologians will suggest different uh, themes consistent through the whole Bible. So, for instance, uh, James Hamilton, uh, who's a, a professor at S uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, uh, he has several individual books on biblical theology and how to do it, but his big book on biblical theology is called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And that's what he has identified, God's glory and salvation through judgment. He identifies that as the major theme of the entire scriptures. And if you get his big book, you see that he works through every book of the Bible to show where that theme is. Where is that in Genesis? Where is that in Exodus? Where is that in Leviticus? So on and so forth. It's trying to find the storyline of the scriptures. Um, what we would say is be, through the gospel-centered paradigm, looking at how the New Testament reads the Old Testament, what we're going to say is no matter how you articulate that, God's glory and salvation through judgment or some other phrase, the whole of the Bible, the central theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the, the major focal point of the entire thing. You'll notice in the very first Christian sermon, if we can call it that, I suppose, uh, which is Peter um, at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. His message, um, which is about a message, he's, he, he's basically um, doing exposition of the gospel, but he's using Old Testament texts. So his sermon at Pentecost is actually really helpful for us, both in the content of it and in the form of it. And this, is, it, this may sound like I'm, I'm kind of splitting hairs here um, or kind of nitpicking, but there's a um, kind of a, a controversy among sort of, you know, biblical interpretation where sort of the strict grammatical historical guys will say, um, we can read Christ in the Old Testament where the apostles explicitly do. Um, and then there are other folks who will say, historical grammatical only gets us so far. But the apostles are not just telling us isolated instances where Christ is in the Old Testament. They're giving us a hermeneutic to read the entirety of the Old Testament to see the entirety of the scriptures. So what Peter does is he gives basically an exposition of Joel chapter two. And by the way, if you're looking for biblical rationale for expository preaching, sometimes you'll hear guys say like, expository preaching is not in the Bible. The, the only preaching that we have, I mean, you may not see like the verse by verse kind of you know running commentary type preaching, but the, the major form of apostolic preaching in the New Testament is Old Testament text and Christ from it. That's what preaching is in the New Testament. So it's an exposition that's Christ-centered. Those are the kind of the, the non-negotiable ingredients. So Peter is doing an exposition of Joel chapter 2. He includes some other passages in there, and he's showing us sort of the connectedness. I mean, it's a, it's a short sermon, um, at least compared to our sermons today. It's a short sermon, uh, maybe a little longer compared to other apostolic sermons that we see. Um, but it, it, it's short, but he brings in things like Psalm 16, he brings in Psalm 110, he's making um, connections, he's showing us kind of the, um, the matrix of the Old Testament and how that is uh, woven together in the presentation of Christ. Basically, if you take these different threads and you put them together, what you see is a portrait of Jesus. That's what Peter is, is showing us. Um, which is really key because he's not just doing sort of, here's an isolated incident and here's an isolated incident. He's trying to see like, all of this is so that we would see Jesus. So in his exposition of Joel and the Psalms and in their culmination in Christ, um, in verse 22 of Acts 2, he says, uh, he says, this is all about Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth is the center of the sermon. 
He's giving us a hermeneutic, actually, a way of reading and preaching the scriptures ourselves. He's showing us, number one, that the scriptures are living and active, and that also the scriptures' um, central testimony is the powerful message of grace. Um, Jesus, in Luke uh, chapter 4, he unfurls that scroll. He reads Isaiah 61 in the temple, um, and they're liking it up to the point that he says, all of this is about me. <laughs> and then they're like, hmm, you know, they get a little um, unnerved by that. That's actually the, like where they want to kill him afterwards. Um, <laughs> they're like, man, this guy's a great preacher until he preaches himself. Um, on the road to Emmaus, so 20 chapters later, is after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. Remember, he sidles up next to those uh, disciples and it says, beginning with the, with the law and the prophets, or beginning with Moses and the prophets, he revealed everything about himself to them, or he interpreted everything about himself to them. Um, he's giving them a hermeneutic. Um, in Galatians 4, where Paul is making connections between uh, um, Old Testament types and the message of grace and the covenant of grace, he's giving us a hermeneutic. The entire book of Hebrews is giving us a, a hermeneutic, not just isolated incidents. Now, um, I think it's somewhat problematic, in fact, to believe that what we are receiving are simply isolated incidences um, of, of Christ appearing, but otherwise it's not about Christ. It makes the Bible, at least the Old Testament, seem disjointed or it makes it seem somewhat um, discordant with the culminating story in the New Testament. Um, so, I mean, you know, I know, and I've got good friends who... You know, that's what they believe. Where the apostles say Jesus is there, Jesus is there. But where we don't have a clear New Testament referent, we cannot see Jesus there. Um, you know, I understand that. I, I, I understand the sincerity of it, actually, and the desire not to go beyond the Bible and those sorts of things um, as well. But it, it seems to me that that makes the Bible sort of a, a, an amalgamation of kind of disjointed stories, actually. So sometimes it's about Jesus and sometimes it's about being good and doing good and being better, and, and that becomes a central message. Is Christ the fulfillment or is he not? Um, I think this has huge implications for our preaching, um, certainly our, uh, um, you know, also our teaching, but especially for our preaching, that we preach Christ crucified as the center point or as the culmin you know, culminating focus of our sermon. So those of you who are called to preach, uh, to remember that true Christian preaching according to the New Testament, anyway, is preaching Christ. True Christian preaching is not simply providing a data download of, of biblical information. Um, doing that, if you're going to do that, must serve the proclamation of Jesus. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you do not preach Christ, it's not a Christian sermon. You might be a Christian preaching to Christians on Sunday in a Christian church, but if you don't preach Christ... You know, couldn't it have been preached in a Mormon, you know, tabernacle? Couldn't it have been preached in a synagogue if you're in the Old Testament? Isn't it, you know, what makes it distinctly Christian? It is Christ that makes something distinctly Christian. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, For every one of God's promises is yes in him. I think he's given us a hermeneutic. So if we don't see the Bible through a gospel-centered paradigm, it becomes a disjointed mix of religious stories and instructions easy to use for moralism or doctrinalizing. Okay, second broad category is, um, is idols. Idols, which is the root of behavioral dysfunction. 
Um, this is something we have um, helpfully in the gospel recovery movement, we've been helped by, I suppose I should say, um, the Reformed or the Reformation uh, focus on idolatry. John Calvin, of course, famously said, our hearts are factories of idols. Idolatry is what is underneath every behavioral sin. Um, whenever we sin, however we sin, we are basically saying something other than God is what satisfies us, completes us, fulfills us, gives us peace, gives us joy, or justifies us, or what have you. And while the law, um, commandments, can do an adequate job of curtailing behavioral sin, right? don't do that, do this instead, you'll have a better life, you'll be happier, etc. Or it just makes God mad, you know, or you know, that sort of thing. It can do an adequate job of getting us to stop or curtail certain behavior. The law is not equipped and has zero power to expel the idol in our heart that actually drives us or compels us to want to do that behavioral sin. Uh, one of the best sort of um, historic pieces on this subject is a little essay by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive, E-X-P-U-L, not explosive, although I guess it could be explosive too, but um, expulsive, and then it's expelling something. Um, pro probably some of you have read it all, all, already. You can read it for free online. It's not really long. It's kind of a sermon essay thing. Um, but Crossway just put out a little in their kind of, I think it's like shorter classics series. It's a little paperback, but it has a nice, you know, little cover on it. Anyway, um, it's, it's a neat little book. <laughs> and what, what Chalmers talks about is essentially that the law is not constituted such that it can expel an idol from our heart. What the law can do is actually put a new idol <laughs> in our heart, which is where sort of the, the rise to self-righteousness or legalism comes from. And if, if, if all we've done is superficially, if all we've done is replace bad things for good things, it's actually just a different form of idolatry. Um, if you just become religious with no heart change, if you just become a religious person, you're essentially engaging in self-worship because it's self-righteousness. Uh, you, you become a legalist, in, in, in other words. And what we learn throughout the New Testament is that legalism um, is not a, a superior um, you know, mode of being to licentiousness. Right? The answer to hedonism is not, is not legalism. And in fact, some of the harshest words in the New Testament are towards legalists. Um, I remember the day, like, it was just like, eye-opening to me that the idea of falling away or like falling from grace, which is usually how we, we use those phrases when we think of someone like falling into sexual sin or you know, having a moral failing or something like that. The phrase is actually employed for legalists. <laughs> you, they've fallen away from grace. You have fallen away. Um, it's for those who become hyper-religious, divorced from a heart for Christ. Um, idolatry is the root of every behavioral sin. Uh, when Paul entered uh, the city of Athens, he saw that it was full of idols. He began to exegete his, his context. Um, there are idols in every community. There are idols that are particular to churches. Um, I think it's one of the things that ministry leaders ought to be somewhat... Um, um, inspective about, not just what are the you know, particular idols of my neighborhood or of my city, but what are the particular idols of my church? And you know, all churches have some idols in common, but um, uh, different churches will have different idols in common as well. So older churches perhaps will have idols of nostalgia and how we used to be, and that's not the way we've always done it. And I remember the days when we, you know, and it goes beyond just sort of fond memories to sort of, uh, you know, stunting 
future progress and becomes a, a ground of distrust of present leaders um, for doing new things and for having you know, new challenges because we're kind of stuck in the past and we're memorializing the past in a very kind of halcyon days um, sort of way. Um, but newer churches, you know, they don't have that past, so they may have different idols in, in mind. Um, given the demographics of a church, right, there are um, churches in the South um, where youth sports becomes a major idol to, you know, for, you know, for churches to kind of uh, combat families that are gone for weeks at a time because of, you know, um, youth baseball or uh, uh, travel baseball or travel soccer or things like that. That's not, you know, I pastored a church in Vermont for six years before I moved to Kansas City. That was not a predominant thing. I came from Nashville and tech, you know, um, Texas and Tennessee where that was sort of a thing or was becoming a thing. Um, you know, when I was there up to Vermont, that was not a thing. It was just not an idol to, you know, to look at. There were other idols um, there. So we need to just know in particular, what is it that drives the behavioral sin in this place? When you're sitting across from somebody in a counseling session or just in personal discipleship, knowing the sins they're committing is important. And they tell you some things, knowing what they're trying to medicate Knowing what they're trying to satisfy, knowing what's, what's you know, in their heart that compels them to those particular behaviors is even more important. And the only thing that can expel that disordered worship is rightly ordered worship that comes through beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. We want good behavior. This is not a disinterest in people behaving well. But we know that the good behavior that honors Jesus comes from a heart that has affection for Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, so after 1 Corinthians 15, the second best place I would take somebody, if they're like, where's this gospel centered stuff in the Bible? I would take them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because in that chapter, um, Paul is contrasting the law and the gospel. And he, very helpfully, he helps us to see that the law is not bad. Sometimes gospel centered folks, they start to trend kind of antinomian a little bit. Um, we have to remind those, we kind of have to pull those folks back and remind them that to be gospel-centered isn't to be gospel, you know, isn't to be a gospel-onlyist, it's to be a gospel-centeredist, right? So we're not saying gospel-only, we're saying gospel-centered, we're trying to get the order correct. So we're not antinomians, we're not disinterested in law, and Paul's very, you know, he's helping us to see the, the law has glory, it reflects the holiness of God, how could it not be glorious? But he says the gospel surpasses the law and glory. And in um, verse 18 of that chapter, he says, it's by, he says it's by beholding the glory of Christ with an unveiled face that we are transformed from one degree of glory into another, into the same likeness. And this comes by the Holy Spirit. In other words, somehow beholding Jesus makes us more like Jesus. And if that's true, we want to hold up Jesus as often as possible in our preaching, teaching, counseling, discipleship, daily life. <laughs> Man, I wish these kids would act more like Jesus. Well... You need to show them Christ. Help them to see Jesus. Moralism is not going to get us there. Um, third major category, uh, growth and sanctification. So the, the idol category, uh, understanding that and how the gospel speaks to reordering our worship leads us directly into this question uh, or, to the, or to the category of growth and sanctification. And the question, uh, which is basically, how do people change? If you're in Christian ministry, this is the working question of your existence, <laughs> helping people change, and answering the question, how do people change? From conversion onward, 
the good news of Jesus is the power for our Christian life. It is the mechanism, the, the catalyst for, what, for, uh, um, for heart transformation. The law cannot change a single heart. The law contains zero power to change anyone. The only power the law has is power of condemnation. Um, it's by seeing Jesus that people become more like Jesus. So sermons and lessons with seven practical steps, as helpful or as relevant or as true as they may be, cannot change a single heart. When Paul says that we become like Christ in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says this comes by the Spirit, he's helping us remember that what we're dealing with here is, is supernaturality. That Christianity is about supernaturalness. It's not a technique, it's not a formula, it's not pragmatism, that what we are stewarded is power from heaven working through the historical message of the gospel. Believe it or not, the, the foolishness of this message, there's power from the third person of the Trinity working through that to impact and change people in their insidest insides. This is what God is committed to doing through this 2,000-year-old history announcement historical announcement. That's the power that we've been stewarded. And it's the only power that we've been stewarded. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Ephesians 3.7, Paul says the gospel was given to him by God's power. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says the gospel is accompanied with power. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says the message of the gospel is the power of God. We see here in 1 Corinthians 15, you are being saved. I take him to refer to the work of progressive sanctification. Not that you somehow lost your salvation and you got to get resaved or anything, but that you're becoming more like Christ, the process of, of sanctification. That's powered by the gospel as well. The good news of Jesus Christ is power outside of ourselves, in spite of ourselves. It is sourced in the Holy Spirit who is obliged and committed to furthering the glory of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, in Titus chapter 2, um, Paul says something um, staggering. What is it that trains us, some translations, instructs us to renounce ungodliness, to live upright lives in the present age? Basically to be good behaviors, right? That's, that's what we want. Everybody to just act right. I just wish everybody would just act right. Sometimes I just want it for like a week. Can we just, when I'm, when I'm in the elder group chat, I'm like, you know, it'd be great if everybody would just act right. For one week, just give us a break. Well, how do you get that? How do you get everybody to act right? Um, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. Announcing salvation for everyone and training us to renounce ungodliness. If I didn't know that verse was in the Bible and somebody had just asked me, what is it that trains people? Like even just the word training in the ESV trains people to be repentant, trains them to be godly. I would come up with some variation of the law. You know, you explain the implications, here's the imperatives, here's what you gotta do, you know, do these things. This is how you train, this is how you discipline yourself. Paul says it's grace. Somehow, and, and the Greek word there bet, uh, behind appear is, is uh, epiphania, like an epiphany, uh, which is a different kind of like you saw it. It's like, oh, the, you know, grace has appeared and it trains you to renounce un ungodliness. Um, 
I just, yeah, wow, I just love that that's in the Bible. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 2, that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not his cajoling, not his scolding, not his nagging, um, and it's not his law even that leads you to repentance, but his kindness that leads you to repentance. So it, it behooves every Christian leader, counselor, teacher, pastor, so on and so forth, to ask the question, where am I putting the weight of transformation? What am I leaning into to affect change here? And again, this is not antinomian where you don't give imperatives or you don't teach the biblical, you know, the practical things of the scriptures, et cetera, et cetera. It's simply, what are you trusting to change the heart of the person? And the Bible says that's the gospel. Four broad, uh, fourth big category, relationships, relationships. This certainly speaks to how we relate to other people in terms of our demeanor towards them, our disposition towards them, that we want to be gospel-centered, which is to say we want to be gracious, we want to be Christ-like in our dealings with others. We want them to hear kind words from us. They, they, we, we want them to know that we're forgiving people, that we're repenting people, that we are um, willing to confess sin. And your eagerness or your, um, uh, your instinct to confess is directly connected to your um, in-touchedness with the gospel. Because if you know that you're forgiven by God, um, at, you know, you're, as Colossians says, hidden with Christ and God, you don't have anything left to hide. Um, you can boldly share that you're a sinner. You can boldly confess your sin because you know that your sin's forgiven. To the extent that you're out of touch with the gospel, that's where you start to hide and kind of you know, subterfuge and uh, spin and all those sorts of things. Uh, to make sure people will like you or not see the whole truth about you and those sorts of things. Um, but to the extent that you're kind of walking in the light, uh, um, you know, really in the light of, of, of grace, uh, as John says, then you can actually have fellowship with one another. I, that's really fascinating, isn't it, that John makes that connection? If, you know, let's walk in the light as he is in the light. If we do not walk in the light, um, uh, then we do not have fellowship with one another. Um, which is a, a really helpful connection because he could have just said, if you don't walk in the light, you don't have a, you don't have a, a fellowship with God. And that's certainly true, but he makes it like a pre, uh, the basis of our true fellowship with one another if we walk in the light of God. And I think it's because if we're not walking in the light of God, um, if we're not transparent, if we're not authentic, we're not walking in the light, then we don't really have a relationship with each other. We have a relationship with each other's religious selves. <laughs> or we have a relationship with kind of, you know, church avatar self or, you know, person that I'm, the me when it's time to be churchy or the me when it's time to put on the religious garb, that's who you have a relationship with. If I'm not really confessional or authentic and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it, the gospel, you know, impacting relationships certainly has to do with being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, outdoing one another, showing honor, Romans 12, 10, those sorts of things. Um, but it also just has to do with like, as so often happens in, in ministry situations, um, having to have hard conversations, um, conflict, having to exercise church discipline, um, all those sorts of things that we would shrink back, you know, kind of be fearful of, try to avoid if we don't know that we're secure in Christ. 
If we don't know the good news of Jesus, if we, if we think it's really all about what we do, how we perform, what kind of world we can create, then we'll avoid all of those difficult things. Um, we'll be shaken in our boots when we gotta walk into that room to have that hard conversation, um, necessary confrontation. I can tell you um, nearly all of my regrets um, from uh, my time in vocational pastoral ministry um, have to do with um, uh, passivity, not addressing things that I should have addressed, and it was always because I didn't want conflict. I, I would see myself as being kind of a peacemaker, um, but really what I was was a coward. <laughs> I, did, you know, I, I didn't want to make anybody mad, and I didn't want them to, especially didn't want them to be mad, to, you know, to be mad at me. Um, and that caused me to not be uh, decisive and, and, and to not take initiative on things that, you know, that I should have taken initiative on. And I identify that as, as sort of a dysfunction of, of gospel connectedness for me. Because if I believe I have the full approval of God in Jesus Christ, then I not, I'm going to be less afraid of what you're going to do or what you're going to say or having that conversation. And it even speaks to the relational piece like, I don't really love you if I'm not willing to speak the truth to you. If I actually cared about you. Now, there's, there's unloving ways to speak the truth to you, I suppose. But the, the just very idea of speaking the truth to you if I don't love you, then I won't want you to be repentant. I, I won't want you to, um, you know, to know the truth. Um, and so it's even like my fear of you and speaking the truth to you could be um, very unloving, actually, towards you. Um, so those are the four broad categories. I know we only have a couple minutes left, so I'll just give you these, these three implications. These are the things... Um, that I like, I want my students to know. If someone says, hey, "What is this gospel-centered thing?" I see it all over the books and the conferences and what have you, and it seems like a marketing term. What does it mean? Because when I ask on day one, when I ask my students, "What does it mean to be gospel-centered?" they all say something like, "It means that you do everything with the gospel at the center." And I'm like, well, "Yeah, <laughs> all right." So you just turn the words around, like, like, like it's like a Jedi mind trick. It's like this is not the answer you're looking for, you know. Um, I'm like, okay, yeah, right. But what does that mean? I want them to have the substance. Here are the three things, like, and we just go at this all throughout the semester, and I want them to walk out knowing this. Uh, number one, the whole Bible is about Jesus. This is, this is very simple. This is not like revolutionary stuff. I'm just trying to summarize. If you had to in an elevator, right? What's the elevator pitch for gospel centrality? Number one, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Number two, people change by grace, not law. Um, in the fine print, at least in terms of, of, of how we, you know, count change, you, you can get behavioral change through cracking the whip of the law, but heart change comes by grace, not law. And then number three is um, our personal validation is found in the gospel, not performance. Our personal validation is found in the gospel, not performance. And that third one, I'll just say maybe 120 seconds, um, something about that. That's really key for some of us, probably for, uh, if not for all of you, for some of you. Um, the kind of discipleship that I, that I grew up in, that had the gospel was just for lost people, now you graduate, really stunted my relationship with my Heavenly Father um, and my friendship with Jesus because I always thought it was based on how good a Christian I was. That, God, that there were days God was really disappointed in me. Um, because of my sin or just because of my neglect of being as spiritual as I could be, um, I thought my status, the in which I stand, 
was based on how that day had gone. Whether I was a good Christian or a bad Christian, I could go to bed at night and the Lord was like, Shh, I thought you were better than this, you know. Um, and the reality is, because of the gospel, there's not a single day where God says that to you. In fact, and some of you may disagree with this, and that's okay. I'm up here and you're down there. Um, <laughs> I, I would say God's never mad at you. Um, I remember the first time somebody said that to me. You know, God, Jared, um, God's never mad at you. And I was like, I mean, he's mad a lot in the Bible, man. I'm like, I don't, <laughs> seems like he's mad a lot. And he's certainly, if he's going to be mad about those guys, he's got to be mad about me. Um, he's not surprised by your sin. He's not disappointed in you. Um, on, on one level, to say he's disappointed in you is to, is to somehow suggest he's surprised by you. <laughs> that like there was a, you know, you finally screwed up and he was like, you know what? I had no idea you were like this. You know, uh, I really thought you were an asset when I brought you onto the team. Uh, <laughs> But he, no, he knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you're like. He saw that moment coming. If you believe in the omniscience of God, which I do, I, I think you have to have the omniscience of God for God to be God. He, he knew you were going to do that. And he sees all the things that you haven't even thought to do wrong yet. He knows you're going to do all those things too. And he still brought you onto the team. That's how much he loved you. And so there's not a moment. I'm, now I'm not saying he, he's pleased with your sin. But when we sin, you're not, he's, he's not surprised by that. Um, he sees you through the lens of his son, as cliched as that may sound. You st- in which you stand, present tense, you stand under the good news. Um, he has you in his hand. Nothing can snatch you out. He will never leave you or forsake you. There's not a moment where he says, I've reached my limit with you. So this means you wake up, not to God saying, let's see what you got today, but into his, his free and full favor. It means that no matter how the day is gone, you put your head on that pillow at night into his full favor. That's really good news. Uh, the fear is that this leads to a kind of you know, cheap grace or something like that. And I think it does for people whose hearts are not changed. But if your heart has been captured by Christ... Man, the joy of this, it makes you want to work and to run according to his will. Um, your, your personal validation is found um, in the gospel, not your performance.